Good morning, all. Hiya. If you haven't got notes, they, they grab some from a sheet nearby. You can get out of your seat and grab some. There should be enough around. I ran out of photocopies, but there should be enough to go around this morning. Not quite sure what order to do today in. Got a lot to, to say. Um, let's just pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your sweet presence in this place this morning. And I pray you'll continue to open us up as, as we have worshipped you, Lord, presented ourselves before you. Now would you speak into our spirits, speak into our soul, a life-changing word. Come, Holy Spirit, we call you. You are our guide, our teacher. And we pray you would expound the word to us this morning. Let us see new things that will aid us to serve you better and live better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The, the, if you get the sheet that's marked, Here I Stand, Part 8. Here I Stand, Part 8. I'll come to the fasting one in a minute. <laughs> so this is week number 8 in a series looking at Christian foundations. We've looked at several different things. In the first week, if you remember, we looked at creation. I don't know if you follow National Geographic or the History Channel or Discovery. One thing they're always on about is this. They say, we're looking for intelligent life. We're exploring the outer reaches of space to see if we can find intelligent life. Well, guess what? <laughs> intelligent life has made itself known in the person of Jesus Christ. God is really easy to find if you want to find him. But unfortunately, science has a way of building up you know, blockages and obstacles to that. And we spent a week looking at that because it's very topical. The, the, the whole creation thing, the whole scientific thing, we've really got to look at it again. Really got to look at it again because of the nature of the education systems. You know, look, for example, you've got a brain. Praise the Lord. Everybody got a brain? Amen. Your brain's about half the size of a cabbage. I'm not insulting you. I'm just telling you the truth. Your brain's about half the size of a cabbage. Now, that means that there could be a brain the size of a beach ball. And that means there could be a brain the size of a truck. And that means that there could be a brain the size of the earth. There could be a brain the size of a galaxy. And you start to look out into space and you start to see that God, if you like, you can understand how God exists. If I can have a brain that works like this and you can have one, surely... It's not illogical to say that there's an awesome God out there who actually has, you know, cognitive ability, thinking ability, power. Amen? And that whole scientific approach, we have got to look at again and again. The first week we looked at creation, then man, then Jesus, then God, then faith. And last week we looked at the Word. The Word's a mighty important thing. I mean, talk about an understatement. The Word is an important thing. And how to galvanize and protect your life against the Word of God. Children here, and I mean children, anybody, all of us, we're all children, we've all got parents. We've all got parents, hopefully alive. Respect your parents. Remember, God has given you parents to govern over your life, to, 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 to feed you with the Word of God, to speak into your life. Don't disrespect them. Major ploy of the devil is to get children to disrespect their parents because that's where your cover is. Same within marriages. A trick of the devil to get you to disrespect your husband or your wife. 
because they're supposed to be a blessing to you. So children respect your parents with regards to the word. Parents respect each other. And Christians, remember, don't fall for disrespecting your pastor because he's the source of the word into your life or your discipler. It's the same trick in every situation. Get smart and outwit the devil and open up for the word of God to come into your life consistently so that you grow. Don't take what the devil feeds you. Amen. So last week we looked at the word and how important that is. This week, grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Once again, how important could this be? How many lives have been ruined because of abuse of grace or lack of understanding of grace? Look at this. This is a a, a simple chart But it's a chart I think that most Christians probably don't understand. Something that really helped me. There's you. Okay? And God saves you. And he intends that you walk in grace. And that you live in the grace of God. He's a good God. He blesses you. And he intends you stay here. You live in this segment. But the trouble is, we often fall from grace... We sin deliberately, we fall from grace, and then we end up in a thing the Bible calls faithfulness. But faithfulness is not the grace of God, it's a different thing. And when God is being faithful to someone, that person's in trouble. Big trouble. Because he shouldn't have to be faithful in that way to us. There's a problem somewhere. And you can see this same problem in a multitude of situations. You see it in a marriage that's having difficulty. You know, you go to countless homes, having trouble. You go around and the husband will say, you know, I'm here, aren't I? I'm faithful, aren't I? Something wrong though, isn't there? Something seriously wrong. Because it's not just faithfulness we're looking for. It's a relationship. So, yes, of course God is faithful to us. But when faithfulness turns up, there's a problem. Okay? Now, so, for example, think about the children of Israel. They were given the grace of God most certainly. But they rebelled against Him. And all through your Bible, God says, But I was faithful to you. And David cries out to the people, Wasn't God faithful even when we were not? So, yes, faithfulness... uh, God is faithful, but if you abuse that faithfulness, guess what's next? Judgment. And that's what happened to people of Israel. God gave them grace. They abused it. He was faithful to them. So then they ended up under judgment. You know the story. They lost the land. They were dispossessed. They were ruled by Babylon. Goodness knows what. The Phoenicians, etc., etc. Judgment after judgment after judgment came upon them. So... Round and round you go. Now listen real carefully. Listen. God was good to them again. And he gave them this thing here. Repentance. Do you know what repentance is? It's a gift. It's a gift. So when you were lost and you were a sinner, you can't repent, you know. Nobody can. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift you have to use. We're both, you know, God's involved and you're involved. But it's a gift from God. So the Jews... You know the story. God was gracious to them, but they abused it. He became faithful to them, but they abused that. So judgment came upon Israel. But then God was gracious to them again. And he gave them the gift of repentance. And you will hear the Bible talk about the mountain. How many times are you going to go around the mountain? 
That's the mountain. That's it. So the people of Israel went round and around and around this mountain for generations. But guess what? And this is the important bit, folks. Listen real careful. A day came when they were living in the grace of God. God, they rebelled against God, but God was faithful to them. Then they ended up in judgment, but guess what? There was no repentance. God stopped giving the gift of repentance. You can read about it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He cut them off. And a veil came over them, is the way Paul puts it. Repentance wasn't given. And in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this history of God's people and how they abuse God's grace. And he warns the church, that's us, that if we are so foolish to think that we can also abuse the grace of God, we're kidding ourselves. For we will be just like the Jews, he says. And he takes us around this little merry-go-round, this mountain, that's very important to get branded in your brain. I, I want to live in the grace of God. Amen. I want to live and be sustained there by you, God, please. So this is not just the story of the Jews. But it is the story of many, many, many Christian lives. Many individuals who go round the mountain, round the merry-go-round, and don't live, you know, in a sustained way, a consistent way, under the grace of God. Definitely not enough teaching on grace. Definitely not. I need to know about this. I need this to live. It's the air I breathe. That's what the grace of God is. I need grace every day. But unfortunately, if you're anything like me, when I got saved, I was sort of dumped in the Christian church. I had zero discipleship, nothing. As I mentioned to you before, three years in the church and I had three minutes with my pastor. <laughs> That's all I got, three minutes. I arrived at his house one day and he said, you've got three minutes. And I wasn't in there much longer. So I had very little help. And I thank God for churches like this where we're here for one another. But very often you're saved in the Christian life and you're sort of dumped. Remember the, the Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans when that hurricane bashed in and, and flooded the whole of the city? They, they, they came and they saved them. Remember the helicopters came and they lifted the people, but what did they do with the people? They dumped them in the Superdome. And that was it. There you go. <laughs> Bye. And they were left there with no food, no water, no medical care. Crazy stuff, unbelievable stuff in this day and age. But that's what happened. And, and there's more to it than that. They needed more care than that. Yes, you've saved them, but now they need something else. Right? And that's, what, that's where grace comes in. We're not just saved by grace, guys. You're not just saved by grace, but we need faith. We, we need grace. We need to walk in grace to be sustained by grace. So... One of the first things the Apostle John, when he's describing Jesus Christ, imagine this, John is just starting his gospel, it's in chapter 1, and he's thinking of Jesus Christ, how would I describe him? And he says, you know, here he comes, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. That is how John described Jesus Christ. And that's most certainly how you and I should be. We should be full of grace and full of truth. The truth bit's actually so much easier. You know, a person who's full of truth, forgive me for saying this, but they can be very ugly, very nasty, very awkward, 
very difficult in their relationships. If all you've got is truth, that's not the whole story. Truth can destroy you, destroy your friendships, destroy your relationships if it's not balanced with grace. It needs to be seasoned with grace. Jesus was not just full of truth. He was full of grace and truth. And there's a massive difference. So, you know, don't answer this question out loud, please. What are you full of? It will be seen in all your relationships. What are you full of? Are you full of grace? Good. I hope that's not all. You need also to be full of truth. And you need to make an assessment of yourself this morning in terms of just what your content is. Now, this is a problem for individuals, but it's not just a problem for individuals. The, the, the content of me, you know, it's, it's not just personal. It's also a problem for churches, which is why you've got so many of them. You know, the, the, the evangelicals typically, I'm generalizing in a huge way, but the evangelical tradition typically overbalanced in truth. You know, there was too much truth in there and not enough grace. But the Pentecostals went to the other extreme and they overbalanced in grace and often compromised the gospel a little bit, forgive me for saying. So, you know, neither of those, you know, there's a tendency towards ex- extremes sometimes in both of those camps. And that's, that, that's no good. So individuals have a problem with this. Churches, denominations have a problem with this, which is why they exist. And even governments have a problem with this. That's why you've got the Taliban, full of truth, if you like. You know, it's, le- it's legalistic. But you've also got a, a liberal society like the USA. So you've got extremes in societies and governmental structures. Because listen to me, people can't keep a balance. Governments can't keep a balance. They either become like the Taliban or they become like America. Churches find it difficult to keep a balance. So it is a difficult thing. I, I, I don't doubt it. I think it's a very difficult thing. But hey, I just got to think about myself for the moment. Let's just think about me. How am I in relation to this subject? We looked at this subject before. And it's one we need to do every year, like finance. You need to look at finance annually. You need to look at faith annually. You need to look at grace annually because it's something that you're going to need every day and you need a refresher course. You need to sharpen your mind up. So, once again, don't answer this question out loud. Do you have a yes face or a no face? Don't look at the person beside you. Do you have a yes face or a no face? Praise the Lord. (laughs) I hope there's plenty of you. Did Jesus have a yes face? Or a lemon juice face? Or a no face? Which was it? Well, the answer is Jesus had both. Jesus had a yes face to sinners. Right? Read the Gospels. Friend of sinners. Welcoming to sinners. And Jesus had a no face to the legalistic types. He hated religion. Make no doubt about it. Jesus hated religion. He hated legalism. Hated judgmentalism. Right? So he had a no face towards legalism and religion. And he had a yes face, a welcoming heart to sinners. That's the nature of Jesus. And that's got to be my nature. Hard to see it in here. I'll come to that in a moment. It's hard to see that in the Bible, I think. For me anyway, because of my fallen nature. Doesn't interpret it that way. But I'll explain that in a moment. So to begin with this morning, what is grace anyway? What is it, you know, before I try to get a hold of it? Well, people use the word grace to describe all sorts of things. They use it to describe a dancer, maybe. 
You know, you see someone moving gracefully. Maybe you see Gordon dance here and you think, look at the, the beauty, the, the, the grace. Praise the Lord. <laughs> they use it to describe something beautiful. Grace is, is, is used to describe the gifts in operation. When the gifts flow among us. I think of Kay. Kay, by the way, if you don't know, our worship leader this morning was called Kay. Now, listen to this. Kay's been with us over a year, year and a half, two years. And he was anonymous. I knew him. Didn't know him very well. Used to talk to him now and again. Forgive me, Kay. Unremarkable. It's Kay. Just a guy in the church. One day I come in, and Kay's standing at the front of the church with his back to me over there, talking to someone. And guess what I see? The anointing of God. Rub my K, K, that's K. K's been anointed. K's been anointed. And I sort of get to know you a little bit better, you know. Come out for a cup of coffee. Let me just talk to you. And I could see, even though he had his back to me, I could see the presence of God, the anointing upon him. Do you know what that is? Grace. Grace. And it, 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 it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Grace is seen when God takes hold of someone and puts his anointing upon them. It's fantastic. I mean, there's plenty of you with abilities. I know that. It's fantastic. But abilities don't get you anywhere in the kingdom. You know that. The kingdom's not about abilities. It's about anointings. This is not the world. This is the church. This is the kingdom of God. And it's about anointings. That's what it's about. That's what breaks the yoke. That's what ministers to people. Not skills. Not talents. Anointings. And I, I just think that's fantastic. Grace is seen in initiatives like that by God. The grace of God coming apart. That's point three of what is grace. It, you can see it in maybe a dancer. You can see it when the gifts are in operation. It's the empowerment of God. And for me, that's the most important by far. Grace to me is the empowerment of God to me to live the Christian life. Illumide, if I took God from you, what would you be? Well, you wouldn't be physically dead. <laughs> you'd still be alive. But you know you'd have nothing. You would have nothing. Nothing. Illumide is special. He's a good guy. Very unique sort of person. It's all God. It's all God. And you got nothing without God. And see, if you take God from me, I have, ah, pack up and go home. I'll see you guys. Because I know what I was like before God found me. And you wouldn't want to know me. I've got nothing to offer without God. Nothing, 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 nothing. It's a big problem to you as a person if you think you have got something to offer. I can tell you, get that out of your heart, out of your thinking. It has no place before God. And you know, when I saw Kay that day, one thing strikes me. This is just my thoughts. might be wrong. I bet he was sitting in the church thinking, I've got absolutely nothing to offer. And God said, that's what I'm looking for. That's exactly the sort of person I'm looking for. 
someone who is actually aware that they are totally bankrupt. On such a person, I will put my anointing. That's grace. That's grace. And we need it. Sadly, we're not aware that we need it. Anywhere near as much as we should be. People use the word lightly in all sorts of ways. But it describes the gifts in operation. It's the empowerment to lead your Christian life. People describe it as kindness. Somebody's gracious. They use it before they say, say grace before you eat your dinner, right? Say grace. Thank God for the food. They use it of patience. But the most famous description of grace is, is, is when they call it God's unmerited favor. And I say amen. That's, it. That, that's the best way of putting it. Nice and succinct. Grace is God's unmerited favor to me. But before we continue... Listen, if there was more grace in your life, there would be more joy. There would be more laughter. You would have more friends. True. It's more, you become a more beautiful person. Nothing to do with looks. I'm not talking about looks. Just beauty. The beauty of God shining through. You would, there would be more forgiveness flowing in and out of you. Everything good gets increased when grace increases in you. But if grace decreases, you'll be full of anger and rage and intolerance and judgmentalism and legalism. These aren't spiritual things, are they? Things of the flesh, which show us it's a warning bell. I need grace. God, help me. Fill me with grace. The five basic steps here we're going to look at this morning. Very simple. These are written by a guy called Gary Chapman. Uh, I, I haven't seen anything better, so let's stick with them. How are you going to acquire grace this morning? What are you going to ask for? How are you going to get it? Well, number one, you need to claim the grace to be the person that you are, whoever that is. All of us, there's many career people here. Praise God, no problem. God bless you in your career. But I, I, a word of warning, God may well grace you to follow a career path that people won't grace you to follow. God may well call you where people forbid you to go. It's true. And so you need to claim the grace to be the person that you are. I was raised a Catholic, as you know, but I had to become the person that I am. The day came when I had to be baptized and go back to my parents. It was very difficult and say, I'm leaving the Catholic Church. Broke their hearts. But I claim the grace, folks. I claim the grace under God to be who I am. I don't have to be loyal to your system. And that goes for every part of life. You can claim that. You can ask God for that. God, grace me to do this and not destroy as I do. Give me the grace to follow you and not destroy people or relationships as I follow you. You can claim the grace to marry the person who you want to marry. Now, parental consent is so good and so important, but you may have a little bit of negotiating to do, you know. Maybe your parents don't like this or don't like that, but maybe you feel this is the right person. So you can claim the grace for that. You can claim the grace for which church you join, and goodness knows there's plenty of them. God help us. There's plenty of churches out there, but they're all very different. But you're you. You have your needs, and you need to be where God is calling you to be and claim the grace for that. Probably 
in, in terms of being who you are, there's probably no more sensitive and no more controversial an issue than alcohol. We dealt with this on several occasions. In fact, with the men's group in this church, we dealt with it over a few weeks until we thrashed out a, a sort of an understanding that everybody was happy with. Now, people still have all sorts of opinions, but by and large, I find that the opinions are uneducated. They're just opinions that have come out of a culture, but not out of the book. Okay? So I've dealt with this many times in many different arenas. In fact, this afternoon in the Pakistani meeting, we have a whole session devoted to this topic. But alcohol is a very good way to test your grace, you know? Because you see, to drink alcohol is not a sin, scripturally. To get drunk is a sin, right? But to drink alcohol is not a sin. And God chose certain people. Samson, for instance, was set apart from alcohol, remember? Therefore, they all drank alcohol. When the, when the Jews hear us say this, talk about this, they think we're crazy. Wine is part of their kingdom, you know what I mean? The Jews think we're nuts, they think we don't understand. And of course, many don't. It's just the traditions of men. To get drunk is a sin. Make no mistake about it. And don't hear what I'm not saying. But to drink alcohol is not a sin. And if I'm out for a meal or something and I'm sitting and, and someone, if one of you were there and you were drinking a glass of wine, I, I wouldn't think any less of you or any more of you. It wouldn't affect me. But it would affect some of you. And that's a lack of grace. That's what it is. And you didn't get it from here. Now, there's a long story behind this. You can come at three o'clock if you want to hear the whole story. There's a long story behind it. But you're wrong, you see. Now, I came from a heavy drinking background, and plus I'm a leader. A leader shouldn't drink because that's bad for the sheep. I've given you a bad example if I did that, right? So it's not given for a leader to drink much wine. It's what the scripture says, much wine. But I would say it's not drink in today's world because of the wickedness of our society, because of the perversion that's gone into alcohol. It's madness. So therefore, listen to me. If you intend to be a leader in the modern church and you think you're going to drink, I think you need to think again. I think you need to think again. You need to take a look out there, think again. Because things are not the way they used to be. Take a look at the high street in Glasgow on Saturday night and tell me we don't have a problem. We can't join that. Now, that's talking about leaders. My advice is leave it. But if you see things differently, that's fine by me too. And I give you the grace to be the person you are. Well, I see. I've got to give other people the grace to be who they are, do I? Yeah, you do. And some people just aren't used to that. They're used to having things their own way. Or they've come out of a culture that, you know, supported things that are simply not biblical. The Bible calls them the traditions of men. Because so they can't handle these sort of things. So number one, claim the grace to be who you are. And you judge that as, as God leads you. Secondly, claim the grace to learn from the things in life that you suffer. And we all suffer in life. Again, one of the tricks of the devil is to make you think you're the only one. <laughs> There's nobody as lonely as you. There's nobody suffering like you. There's nobody put upon like you. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Claim the grace to learn from the things that you suffer in life. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1 and 2, right? Paul says, when these things have happened to you, that the troubles and the strife, they have happened to you so that God would comfort you and then you would go and share that comfort with others. That's what Paul says. In other words, they're not to be wasted. Don't waste the sufferings of life. 
Let them be a blessing to other people, to your extended family members, to your neighbors, to people you meet and you evangelize. Tell them about what you've been through and let them benefit too. As you know, the, the first couple of years of my married life were, were dreadful. I mean, it was terrible, absolutely awful. I, I hated that time. It was a terrible marriage. Rocky, rocky, rocky to say the least. But she's okay now. Hallelujah. <laughs> I, could have, I could have written all that off. Listen. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do with that? Hide it? That's what I'll do. I'll hide it. I won't tell anyone. I'll let everybody think everything's absolutely rosy. Pretend. That's what I'll do. That's not what the Bible says. So instead, what you do is you talk about it, and then other people are helped by it. In fact, we wrote a book about it, too. What's love got to do with it? Next month, the National University in Lagos has a two-day seminar based on that book by one of the Christian professors. Hallelujah. Praise God. We're going to invite the young people and take them through that as a curriculum over a two-day period. So I suffer, right? But I don't let it go to waste. Instead, I seek God, yes, that was difficult, but how can the kingdom now be blessed? And you think of your life. You've been through things. Goodness knows, because of the history of this church, because of your backgrounds, so many people here have been through some amazing things. You should talk to Pastor Johann's group. Oh, wow. Persecution, you see. They've fled from persecution. You should hear the stories. It's heart-rendering. Put you in your place, you know. Talk to them sometime. Ask them how they got here. Even Pastor Johans had to flee because he would have ended up just locked in prison and throw away the key just for having a Bible and for being a Christian. It's in Eritrea, you see. Severe things. So it's a double tragedy if you suffer in life and then nobody benefits. Or if you're the only one who benefits, that's a terrible waste. So claim the grace to be who you are, but let other people be who they are. Claim the grace to learn from the things that you suffer. And by the way, folks, listen. If you don't learn from the things you suffer and bless people through your experiences, do you know what you become? You become one of those victim mentality type people, you know? Where they're always a perpetual victim, always playing the victim card. Everything's against me, and that's hopeless. It's a dreadful way to exist because it's such a wonky perspective to have. Don't play that card. Instead, take it on the chin. Let the grace of God patch you up, put you together, and send you out, as Paul calls it, as a minister of grace, to tell other people what God did for you. Thirdly, claim the grace to respond to all the different things that you encounter in life. Man, I, on that third point, I have really changed over the years. Big time. I mean, years ago, if I was driving down the motorway and somebody cut me up, man, I'd chase him. I'd want to run, you know, run him off the road. Hey, roadhog! You know, and I'm sure many of you do the same. A terrible, you know, road rage or anger or things like that. Or, how can I put it? It's just a natural reaction. So, if I give you, uh, say, Ihu, if I give you a sharp word, what are you going to do? Give me a sharp word back? If I speak to you, Martha, and I say something off the cuff, what are you going to do? Just give me a sharp word back, is it? Anybody can do that. I don't need to come to church for that sort of thing. I can get that in the world. 
Amen? But the difference with the church, the difference with Christians, is that even though people are nasty to us, we're known for the love that we have, not just for one another, but for the actual grace that we display. And it's ironic, you know, the number of people that approach you who are crying out for help, but they don't know how to express it, and it comes out in anger against you. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to articulate it, so they shout at you or bawl at you or blame you for stuff. It can be a cry for help. And I hope you can be a little bit deeper than the world and understand a little bit more of this grace we have been given to give to them, because that's what we're supposed to do with it. You see, you need to learn, I need to learn to deal with any situation. Point three, claim the grace to respond to any situation with grace. And not just to be like everybody else, but you would be different in your college, different in your workplace, different in your hospital. Be known for that difference as someone who doesn't just have a smart answer. The Bible says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Fantastic. Who's wrath? Your wrath. So someone speaks nastily to you and you've got anger in you, but you control it. And you speak gently and all of a sudden, it's like pulling the plug on a bath. All that anger just drains out of you and a gentle answer that you give to someone as you control yourself changes your disposition and now you don't have wrath towards them. You're actually ministering, as I say, as Paul says, you're ministering out of grace. So we should be. Point number four, claim the grace to stand for what you believe in, amen, but not to destroy everything and everybody in the process. And this is the problem, folks. A lot of very opinionated people can often be the worst in the world. People go backwards for the want of going forwards. So keen to, 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 to do this or say that or whatever. So opinionated that they can destroy everything around them. I know, been there, done that. Right? Absolutely no good at all. Ask God for the grace, to give you the grace to stand up absolutely for what you believe in, but not to destroy relationships and friendships in the process. In your workplace, you will have disagreements. In your family, you will have disagreements. In the church, you'll have disagreements. So what are we going to do? <laughs> Fall out every time we have a disagreement? No. You need to do better than that. I need to do better than that. You need to learn, I need to learn how to graciously state my case. Graciously state my mind. And say to anybody, be that Jeanette, be that Pastor Tom, Pastor Lumide, Andy, I need to have the grace to say, Andy, you know what? I, I just don't agree with you on that. But I love you. And I respect you. And I respect your position no matter what that position might be. I give you the grace to be who you are, as well as you give me the grace to be who I am. But sadly, that's not what happens so often. I deal with pastors a lot, all the more now with 
assemblies of God as well. So you can imagine the number. We meet every Wednesday. Seven, eight pastors come together every Wednesday in the church. And you can imagine our different backgrounds and the number of theological issues that arise with the different cultures. And about seven or eight weeks ago, two of the pastors had a bit of a theological disagreement. They didn't see something quite the same way. And they were getting a little bit hot about it, a bit hot under the collar, you know, and excuse the pun. And I walked into the, I walked into that situation and I thought, oh, oh, little bit of, little bit of aggro here. And I looked, I thought, what, 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 what's going on? Pastor Elia was there, but he wasn't involved. He was just frightened. <laughs> so I looked, I thought, what, what, what's going on there? And, and they explained, well, such and such and such and such, you know. I said, hang on, give me, give me, da, 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 da. And da 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 da. Huh? And both of those men went, Oh, I, I see. And received that, and everything was, it was gone. You know what Jesus said one day? It was an interesting way he put it. He said, My peace I give you. It's not your peace. My peace I give you. In other words, if he hadn't got it, <laughs> you can't give it. If you don't have peace, you can't give it to anyone. That's why it's lovely to be with people who are peaceful. It's wonderful when someone's at peace in their spirit. It's great to sit with people like that. They're a blessing. The elderly can often be like that. My peace, Jesus says, I give to you. And in that situation, all you've got is two men who are both passionate but lack grace to deal with a simple thing. But I've got that grace, no problem. So I go into that situation and I, I give them the grace that's in me and they are able to receive it. And they oh, that's, that's great. Praise the Lord, I'll have that. And in fact, one of those guys was Pastor Fred. And last Sunday, I was listening. This fantastic meeting with the Pakistanis last Sunday. But as I was listening to him preaching last week, what was he doing? He was lavishing grace on his people. Isn't it great? God can put grace in you, you give it to someone else, and they'll pass it on. And you become just what the Bible said you should be, a channel of grace, a minister of grace. That's fantastic. That's a lot better than going through life, messing up your work because you can't keep relationships together, messing up in your home, in your marriage, because you don't have enough grace to actually facilitate relationships. Hey, you were born again, right? You have access to this. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at this a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 3. Paul gives us a, a, an idea of the way we should behave and the order of importance in terms of the things of God. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 3. He puts doctrines and theologies in second place to relationships. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 Make every effort, he says To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace See that? Make every effort to keep peace with each other Until, in verse 13, he says Until you reach unity in the faith So unity in the faith is sacred Comes in second place And I think that's the golden rule with everything that we do in life It's not about arguing over doctrines or theologies or anything else it's about keeping the relationships first. God is a relational God. Make every effort as far as it's possible to you to keep unity in the faith. The Pope just came. Hallelujah. 
praise the Lord. The Pope just visited Glasgow. Now, I'm not a Catholic. I left the Catholic Church for my own reasons. I don't agree with their theology and a lot of things. But I pray that God bless him, bless his trip, and I hope that through it people find God. They've had a lot of trouble. Goodness me. I was talking with the doormen out here this morning, or one of them is a Catholic. I said, I pray for God's healing on the Catholic Church and forgiveness for all the sins. But you know what? I'm a sinner too. And so are you. I have no stones to cast at anyone. No one. May God bless the Pope and God bless the Catholic Church and may, may, may they come to the light. May they come to know Jesus as they try and find him in whatever way they can. Amen. We need to have grace. That's what we need to have. Kind of difficult when we're willing to criticize someone who gets down on their knees and says, I'm just trying to find God. And all we think about is doctrine. Paul's point there, you just read it. Make every effort to keep the bond of peace until in verse 13, until you all agree in the faith. But when we get those things backwards, we become critical and judgmental of another man's faith and approach to God, if you like. You understand? And the last point, claim the grace to submit to what you need. And this is a biggie, folks. So, so big. Oh, every person here this morning has got needs and great needs as well, huge needs. But often you have to wade through a whole bag full of junk before people start to tell you their story. It's not so bad in Glasgow, actually. I find it easier here. It was harder for us in Dublin with this area. People put up a smoke screen, you know? Uh, the church there was much bigger than this church. And you'd go and visit families and couples. And you know they've got problems, but they won't let you help them. They come to church every week with a problem and they leave with it. But you can't help someone who will not be helped, you know? You've got to be willing. Look at me. Listen to me. You've got to be willing to confess your problems because you've got them. You just don't want to say that you've got them. I think if one guy went to visit him, he was a backslider. He had failed in every department of his life. As a father, he was very poor. As a husband, he wasn't leading his family. He was appalling. As a Christian, hopeless. It was a mess. I remember going to see that guy and I felt God wanted me to lead him out, you know, but there's a way of doing this. There's only one way of doing it correctly. So I go and see him. I remember the first time I go and say, hi, come to see you. Wow, I want to talk to you. And he would pour out criticisms of everybody. And he's this, she's that constant floodgates of criticism of everything and everybody in the world and not a word about himself. So what do you do in that situation? Do you know what I did? Wait, <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk about? No. Anything else maybe you want to mention? No. Okay, I'll see you next week. You go back in. Hi. Off we go again. I say to Jeanette, I could write the script, you know. Back in the next week. And I think it was about four trips. And I'm sitting with this guy. Oh, God. Give him the grace. Would you give him the grace to own up to what he needs? 
And the, the, the last time I visited him was a little bit different in that he didn't go on his usual merry-go-round. Instead, you know what we had? A bit of silence. And it was only about 30 seconds, 40 seconds of silence. At the end of it, he looked over at me and he said, I'm backslidden. I lost my way. I lost my fire. I lost my intimacy with God. I lost it all. Where did I go wrong? What went wrong? And I thought, thank God, at last, we've got to the root of the problem. You know, on Friday night, oh man, praise the Lord, my God. It's been, well for me, it's, it's very special. Out of this world. Out of this world. That God should grace us with the presence like that. It's, it's fantastic. We got up on Friday morning, we had communion, and we started praying in our living room. But something happened to me. I get words, obviously, that's what I do for a living, but that's different. I get words to bring to you. But something happened to me on Friday that was completely different in terms of hearing from God. And I, I shared it on Friday night. The only way I can describe it is I could hear God thinking. You know, it was almost like within the Godhead, God was talking to himself. God the Father talking to, or whatever. But I could almost overhear the Lord. And you know what he said? I'll show you what he said. I find it hard to put into words, so I wrote it out. It was a sad thing. By the way, I'm not saying this about you. This is not about you. It was just God talking and telling me how he felt. And that's what was different for me. So often I get told what I am to do. But on Friday, God didn't tell me what he wanted me to do next. He told me how he felt. And that's why I thought it was so special. And this is what I felt God said. This is how he feels. I will paraphrase him. He said, you know me as God? I used to be first in his life or her life. I used to be number one. It was me. They loved me. They followed me. And everything they did in their lives revolved around me. And it was great. I was their king. And it was wonderful. And they had their work. They had their studies. They had their kids. They had their hobbies. They had their friends. They had their leisure. It was all there. But I was number one. But what happens as the days go by and the years went by, other things began to sort of fade me out. And, and, and priorities changed and all of a sudden they slipped me into second place and I can tell you folks when you speak to someone who has God in first place it is a very different conversation than you have with someone who has God in second place the conversation is not the same because the heart is not the same and the mind is not the same now the descent is very slow at the beginning and then it quickens up so so all of a sudden they became too busy in work so then other things became and then they got into third place you know and though they say they want to spend time they want to do this they don't and I used the example on, on Friday night of, of my dear friend who's dead now Morgan missed church one Sunday I rang him up you know I said where were you man and he said he had to fix the toilet seat. Now, just in case you don't understand what that means, this is what it means. It means the toilet is there and God is beneath 
the level of a toilet seat. Sorry, folks, but that's what it means. And you see, whether it's your work, your studies, your kids, your hobbies, your friends, or anything that takes precedence over God, it's in the wrong place. And I stagger at the foolishness of Christians. I stagger at it. Why didn't you go to cell group? Oh, my friend rang up. Did they? Yeah. Friend rang up and said, Hi, what are you doing on Tuesday night? Nothing. Are you sure you're not doing? No, nothing of importance. Nothing that matters. I'm free Tuesday. Why? What are you doing Sunday morning? Nothing. What are you doing Friday night? I'm free. I'm free every Friday night. I have no engagement, no appointment. There's nothing in my mind or my heart. Why? What do you want to do? And I suddenly began to see how the things of this life crept up like weeds and stifled out God from his number one place. Amen? And that's sad, isn't it? That's really, really, really sad. And I just felt I got a little... Let me repeat, I'm not talking about you. I believe God was just saying about his heart for the church and the world. As I, we were out evangelizing on Friday afternoon, and I always get the same feeling over Glasgow, this sort of feeling, that the city is so distracted, so distracted that they can't hear or see or find God, you know? Terrible. I hope we're not like that. I hope we're not like that. Now, many of us are fasting. I know Joe's on a 40-day fast. Several others are fasting right now. And the reason you fast, folks, is the Old Testament used to fast to punish themselves and stuff, you know. We don't do that. We fast because it helps us get nearer to God. So, let's say this was me. And let's say I've lost my way and I no longer have an intimacy with God. He's not in first place in my life. Well, guess what? You can work your way back up this list. Let me just take the toilet away there. I'm going to you can work your way back up this list, but listen carefully. Remember, repentance is a gift. And remember the, the priesthood. The priesthood, God sent the fire how many times? Once. And if you let your fire go out, you had to light it yourself the second time. Right? So you need to work your way back up this list, if you like. Make your own list, obviously. And you need to get God, and I need to get God into first place in my life. On Friday, after, or Friday morning at home with Jeanette, I shared with her what I heard God think. And I said to her, we have many things to pray about. I said to her, put your Bible down. Put the prayer list away. And just sit and be with him. And say, sorry, God. So busy. So tied up with people and things and me that you've lost your place. So many, you know, how, how do I get God back into first place? Well, the answer is fasting, folks. And I say that because you're full of something, you see. Everybody's full of something. You're full of something. I don't know what it is. But you need to create a hunger for God, and you do that scripturally. You do that by fasting. And I've given you a little note. You're probably sitting on it. It's the, it's, NKEM had a word two Fridays ago that we should devote ourselves to prayer and fasting through the months of September, October, and November. 
And the first question people ask when you say we should fast is they say, I don't know how, I don't know what I should do. Get a hold of that. Get a hold of that sheet. It's on, it's on your seat. You find it? Fasting. Fast and pray. The first thing you, when you say to people, why don't you fast? They say they don't know how, but fasting is incredibly simple. You fast. Why do you fast? To humble yourself. To come close to God. To help you read the Bible. To seek deliverance from evil spirits. To seek God's intervention in any crisis in your life or on behalf of others. How do you fast? You can fast partially. Just miss a meal or two. You can fast from food. You can fast from food and, and, and fluids. But most importantly, you, you fast from sin, right? That's the New Testament prescription. And there's great rewards. The Bible lists them in Isaiah 58. Light, health, righteousness, glory, answered prayer, etc. So what I want us to do as a church is to ask God this morning to give us the grace to put him where he should be. And to make an assessment of anything and everything in my life and in your life that has pushed him down that list. Amen? And for the next three months, September, October, November, I believe if I, I'm paraphrasing Enkem, but I believe she came forward and just really spoke out what was on her heart, a word, that if you will do this, you will see God move, right? If you do this, you will see God move. And I know God's doing great things in their lives right now. So get on the bandwagon, amen? Let's just invite the worship team back. Stand with, with us a moment and let's just pray. Hallelujah. Close your eyes, folks. Concentrate yourself on God. God is a good God, a gracious God, a loving, loving, loving God. God, I thank you that there's a, an ocean of grace available to us this morning, a sea of grace. And we want to avail of that. I pray for every family here, every home here, every single individual here, that you will equip us with everything we need for life. And God, the needs are great. We understand that. The needs are great with everyone in this place. But God is greater than your needs. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to give you a moment just to ask God to deposit the grace in you for whatever your specific need is right now. Thank you for listening to today's program. I trust you have been blessed and edified by what you've heard. I want to ask you to do something, and that is to become a partner with us here at Preparing the Way. By doing so, you can help us to take these essential messages out to many other nations, many other people around the world. You can become a partner by visiting our website, preparingtheway.tv, and there you will find many ways that you can join up. Folks, it is a pleasure and an honor to partner with you in bringing in the end times harvest. God bless you, and once again, thank you for listening.